Hello and welcome to Iroquois History and Legends. This is Andrew. And this is Caleb. And so, as promised, we're going to start off today discussing our new series on the War of 1812. Caleb, why don't you start us off by explaining everything there is to know about it? Okay. Uh, first of all, um, nobody really uh, knows anything about the War of 1812 uh, because it was a really kind of useless thing. And um, secondly, no one cares to know. The end. All right, we're back, folks. We're sorry. We actually do have a series on the War of 1812 that we're going to discuss, but it really is a quite overlooked event in American and Canadian and Native American and British history. And Andrew and I do have to plead some ignorance here. You may be wondering why it's been so long since our last episode. And in all honesty, it's because we feel like we've gone into, we've, we've kind of gone out of our realm of comfort. We've spent four years researching Native Americans and colonial history, and we felt pretty comfortable all the way up until the end of the 1700s, and now it's like we have to start studying again. This is the end of colonial history now. We are into early American imperial expansionism. So we're actually not going to get to 1812 today. We're going to talk about the years leading up to the War of 1812, especially among the Native American peoples out west, and we'll also give some brief background into why America and Great Britain and all these Indian nations get intermixed into this continental and then eventually world war again. So we're going to be doing a lot of moving around and explaining what each side is up to. So let's start off with the Iroquois who currently live in the land called Canada. If you recall, after the American Revolution, Joseph Brandt took a lot of his loyalist people and they moved north of what some people today call the imaginary line of Iroquois to the other side of Lake Ontario to the other side of the Niagara River and Brant was actually granted a large tract of land in southern Ontario which at the time was called the Haldimand Tract named after the guy who helped set the thing up. Brant was very vocal in trying to establish a community where all Six Nations could settle. And today that area is actually called the Six Nations Reserve. And you will find people from every single one of the Six Nations there. And so Brant was really playing at the time to try and entice people from modern day Western New York to immigrate across the river to settle in his town, trying to make it much more appealing and eye-pleasing. A lot of the elders and the clan mothers decided that it would be best if they stayed on the two different sides. Because that way, if there was ever an issue, Caleb, where something horrible happened that the United States did to one of them or Britain did to the other, they would have a fallback place to escape to. And so it was actually a smart reason on their part to stay on different I hate to use the term different countries because they still consider their land sovereign nations, but the British and the Americans consider them enclaves, dependents upon their countries, and they view their territory as assimilated land now. 
Is that a good way to explain it? Yeah, I'm kind of uh, picturing uh, the Americans and Canadians viewing it kind of like the way that the Iroquois may have viewed their prop nations. It's like, uh, you know, you may have your own nation, but you have agreed to uh, be submissive to, you know... your. But the Six Nations haven't. But <laughs> no, <laughs> and they've made that very clear in the Treaty of Canandaigua. But that's that mindset is still the mindset of the leadership of these uh, of the province of Ontario and of uh, the now seventeen fires. Yeah, especially in America, because I think we've mentioned in the past the whole right uh, right of conquest. Uh, the Americans viewed it as if the Iroquois lost. The war in the American Revolution, even though they never surrendered. But I, re- <laughs> sorry to keep keep bringing it up. But again, this is where the Americans are coming from in yeah. their thought process. And you can see how uh, a lot of the Iroquois and the other Native Americans have a completely different view. And that's why, if you if you read uh, history from an Iroquoian perspective, it's going to sound completely different because it's it's just the way they view it. But Andrew's right. As far as we see, they were never defeated, and and we've mentioned that a lot of times. Brant's getting a little long in the tooth at this point, Andrew. And so it's time for us to introduce a brand new character. And that's kind of exciting for us because we've been talking about a lot of the same people for the past year in this podcast. And when Caleb says character, this guy is just crazy. And once we start giving you just the background (laughs) on just his parents and then himself, you guys will realize that it really seems like that this guy comes out of some kind of... uh, Fenimore Cooper novel. So let's talk about John Norton, who eventually becomes the adopted nephew of Joseph Brandt and his designated successor. I've studied a lot of history, Caleb, and in all my time there, I've never met anybody more unique and mysterious than John Norton. He was a Scottish-born Cherokee adopted by the Mohawk. Okay, so these these are three different things that don't really seem to go well together. And you forgot to mention also, Andrew, that he was raised in Scotland. Yes, when I say I'm... Scottish born, I mean literally he was born in Scotland. And you may think to yourself, okay, well, um, maybe his mother was Cherokee and kidnapped and taken back to Scotland. No, his dad was Cherokee. His mom was Scottish. And in today's day and age, interracial relationships are are fairly common. But at the time, interracial relationships where the man was not white were very rare. Can I I say that, Caleb? Would you stand to think that that was highly uncommon? Mm -hmm. Okay. So his father was Cherokee. And when he was a small boy, he was kidnapped from his village of Kowoki. Uh, which was destroyed in the French and Indian War. For all intents and purposes, an orphan, a prisoner, and he was sent back to Scotland to get an education. He grows up learning the the Scottish culture, and he marries a Scottish woman, and through their relationship, they have this guy named John. So he was raised and educated, and he eventually joins the military. And he spends time traveling with the military. He goes to Ireland, he goes back to North America, to Quebec, And eventually he winds up in the Niagara region. And by 1788, he decided to throw in the towel with the army. And he decided to join the Mission Society instead. And he basically became a a school teacher in one of those, you know, cute little uh, one-room schoolhouses. And uh, he would work with uh, the Mohawk children. 
uh, up on Lake Ontario. And I don't know about you, Andrew, uh, you've done some teaching. Uh, I haven't really done any of this type of teaching other than you know, a little history here and there. Uh, but teaching can be pretty boring, especially if you've just spent the, the best part of your years traveling the world with the army. Uh, it probably starts to get tedious and dull. And after a couple of years, John Norton just couldn't take it anymore. So he decided to retire from the teaching life and become a fur trader. So is this like, and we failed to mention that growing up, his dad was actually a uh, printer. So this would be Norton's like fourth career change. <laughs> and they're very different careers. So in 1791, he's a fur trader and he does that for four years. And then he returns to Upper Canada. When we say Upper Canada, we're saying Southern Ontario. They base it on where the river and the water tables are. It's confusing. Anyway, he then becomes an interpreter in the Indian department at Niagara. And you may think to yourself, well, wait a second. He was born in Scotland. Yeah, I was just about to say, like, how is he an interpreter already? Well, in addition to being a fur trader, a missionary, a soldier, a print shop guy, and a world traveler and an explorer, apparently he was also really good at learning dozens of languages, because of course he was. In his time, he had learned Mohawk and he had picked up the other Iroquois dialects, and then he was also learning these other regional Algonquin dialects. While he's in the Niagara area, who does he run into? Well, there's that old Joseph Brandt. And Norton has heard of him. He's like, you know, world known. Everybody knows Brandt. So he decides that he's going to visit him whenever he has a chance. And over the years, he becomes very close to Brandt. He, he speaks with him. I imagine Brandt like helps, helps him learn the Mohawk land, language and perfect it. He tells him his old war stories. And Norton just becomes obsessed with this guy Brandt. He can't get enough of him. And eventually they get this like father-son type relationship. And Joseph Brandt officially adopts him as his nephew. Now, we want to point out, you may think to yourself, well, why didn't he adopt him as his son? But remember that in Iroquoian culture, nephew kind of has the more significance than an actual biological son. A nephew was actually the uncle's responsibility to take care of more than its own father. And remember that... Hereditary lines could not pass from father to son. They usually went through your sister's child, which was the nephew. So that was the symbology there, why he adopted him as a nephew versus a son. Here's another really uh, cool tidbit. I don't know if you know it, Andrew, but Norton was actually the first person to translate the Gospel of Mark into the Mohawk language. Wow. I mentioned he was good at languages, but not just... Native American languages, but I forgot to mention also that he also knew French and German. So while he's here, he's working with missionaries and Quakers. He's doing translation work. And Brandt sends him to London to meet with Parliament to advocate on behalf of um, the Six Nations Reserve that was there because Haldimand and these other British people Brandt felt were trying to backstab him, trying to take land away, trying to renege on some of their promises. And so sending Norton would really raise the issue that Brant was having with all of these Indian agents. Now, because of Brant's influence with the other Mohawk and the Iroquois councils, Norton, due to his ability to learn the language and immerse himself in the Iroquois culture, he eventually becomes appointed a pine tree chief. And uh, we've mentioned a little bit about them in the 
in the past, but in their councils, they had the 50 sachems, and then you could add like special people due to, due to really great works or, you know, it was, it was an honorary sachem position, basically, to sit amongst the 50. So as Brandt is aging, I, I think we introduced Joseph Brandt in our third episode on the French and Indian War, Caleb. So that's about 20-some episodes ago. That's how long this guy's been around. And as he's getting ill, Brant had been ill on and off for many years, but this, this time he was finally rolling downhill. It was a sudden illness that came on, and he's on his deathbed, and John Norton's there standing by his side. Right before he gets ready to pass, he looks at Norton and says, Have pity on the poor Indians. If you have any influence with the great, endeavor to use it for their good. So with that, Brant breathed his last. Quickly, word spread. Back in his town, members of the community rang the church bell continuously for the next 24 hours straight. People took shifts and turns, making sure that the bell never stopped ringing while they mourned. Now, a lot of people view Joseph Brant differently. He can be anything from a saint and a hero to a knave and a villain. But one thing we can all agree on, for better or worse, since the days of the peacemaker, no one had more influence and fame amongst the Iroquois people. He was 64 years old, and he did what he thought was right for his nation his whole life. Now, in 1809, Norton, he goes south into Cherokee territory. And he ends up rediscovering long-lost cousins and family from his father's side that he'd never even met. That's pretty cool and amazing. After spending time with them, he returned to Grand River in June of 1810. And he found that Great Britain and the United States were on the verge of a new war. What are some of the things that are leading up to this war, Caleb? Well, there is a lot. Uh, in the early 1800s, the United States, they were still, it's so, it's so hard, especially for me being an American and seeing like how vast America has gotten and how powerful we've become. And I always see these situations and be like, well, why didn't they just handle this like that? But they really were still a baby the rest of the world powers still didn't even take the United States seriously at all. The government and their people were still learning their place in the world. And uh, a lot of the leadership in the United States, they did have their sights set on expansion. The problem was that the United States didn't have any money. Or a large army or navy. Yep. Uh, but despite that, some people were suggesting that... Uh, maybe taking advantage of the Spanish colonies to the south. Because, you know, at, at, while this talk is going on, there's this guy, maybe you've heard of him, his name was Napoleon. Yeah, I saw a movie about him, him <laughs> and his friend Pedro. Yes. Well, anyway, uh, that might have been a different guy, Andrew, but Napoleon, I'm sure there's lots of podcasts on about him. Really interesting guy. We don't have time to touch on that. But this guy, Napoleon, was marching through Spain at the time, so a lot of people were saying, hey, uh, no one would probably notice if Florida went missing, so why don't we go down there and claim that from the Spanish? They're a little occupied at the time. 
Um, others were trying to, uh, you know, send messages to the French Canadians because, you know, it was only one generation before that uh, the British took French Canada. So they said, hey, how about we talk to all these French Canadians and see if they want to join the United States and help us kick the British out for good. And the Catholic French said, Protestant Americans, no way, we cannot trust them. The British give us more religious freedom. And there were, there were other groups that were saying, hey, there's still tons of land to the West, and all you got is more Indians there, so maybe we just keep pursuing these treaties and land sales with them, and if worst case comes to it, a war. So they're basically trying to expand the country any way they can, but it would be absolutely foolish to try and do all three of these things at once. Didn't the English just make peace with the U.S.? And didn't the Iroquois just sell off most of New York less than 10 years ago? Yeah, you'd think that... Uh, there should be plenty of open land now. Yeah, there should be land everywhere. You'd think that, you know, it's only been <laughs> between 10 and 20 years for all this to take place. So you'd think that the United States would be pretty content right now. Uh, but they weren't. Things were getting really heated. And the English knew it was only a matter of time before the United States started to try some sneaky trickery to invade Canada. And the U.S. knew it was only a matter of time before the English decided to plan the exact same thing, but coming into the, uh, north, the Northwest area, Detroit, Chicago area. That's yeah. what they were worried about. So basically from 1811 to 1812, you had this kind of Cold War going on. And even years before 1811, in history, they called those the, the quasi-war years. It was basically like a Cold War. The problem was America was having it between both the British and the French because the Americans were still trading with the French, but the French had Napoleon. And so since the Americans were trading with the French, the British from time to time confiscated American ships or all kinds of stuff, which we'll get into more. So Americans start blocking trade for Europe. Europe starts blocking trade for them. This just keeps growing and growing, getting worse and worse until eventually war is going to be declared. There is one good thing about this, Caleb. For one, the British government is really trying to impress American sailors. Yes. So, so that's good, right? Andrew, I think you're reading that long. It's not they're trying to impress them. They're trying to, <laughs> to impress them. Well, what's the difference? Well, what they were doing, Andrew, is they were taking people off of American ships and putting them on British ones and sailing away, and they were never coming back again. So they were stealing and conscripting soldiers. <laughs> we don't have time to get into all that, Andrew, so I wasn't even going to touch it. Well, that's what they were doing. Yes. But and it was we... called impressment, and it had nothing to do with a talent show. Andrew was trying to make a pun. Did it work? Well, I don't know, Andrew. We do have about half a dozen listeners, so maybe one of them will find it funny, but I highly doubt it. So on top of all this trade war with, you know, this boring stuff between uh, the United States and England and France and everything, there's some other more interesting issues going on. For one, the Haudenosaunee living in the confines of the United States. I'm trying to use my words carefully because I know they're still autonomous nations, but they're encapsulated in United States territory. We've got them non-contiguous. The Oneida are in one part of New York, the Seneca are in another part, the Cayuga are in another part, the Mohawks are up north, and then you've got people on both sides of the Canadian-United States border. So they're really disjointed uh, geographically and politically right now. And then when you head out west, we've got other issues. What issues could we possibly have? 
more Indian Wars? Another Indian War. Like Pontiac back in 1763 and then the Northwest Indian War in the 1790s, this next conflict that's about to break out in the second decade of the 1800s is going to be headed by the Shawnee leader Tecumseh. Now, if that name sounds familiar, you'll also recall a Civil War general named William Tecumseh Sherman, kind of burned Atlanta and had a march to the sea, that kind of stuff. Uh, his parents liked the name Tecumseh so much, even though Sherman was completely white, they still gave him the middle name Tecumseh. I don't know why, ask his dad. Tecumseh was born around 1768, and if you think back all the way back to our Logan the Orator episode... Oh, everybody remembers every fact and detail from our <laughs> Logan the Orator episode, Caleb. Tecumseh's father was actually killed at the Battle of Point Pleasant in 1774. And we told you to remember it, so I hope that you all did. <laughs> it was probably like 11 months ago or longer. Probably longer. Tecumseh grew up, became a warrior like all the other strong men. He was involved in a lot of the Western battles we've talked about in past episodes, the Battle of Fallen Timbers. He was also present at the Treaty of Greenville, but he didn't sign it. He was just a spectator. He refused to sign it, actually. <laughs> Another cool thing about Tecumseh, Andrew, are his brothers. He had three little brothers who were triplets. Uh, one died young, uh, but the other two fought alongside him most of his life. Yeah, and the one we're going to talk about today is Tenskwatawe. Or, since Caleb and I are terrible at pronunciation, from here on out, we're just going to call him the prophet. That's a good good way to cheat our way out of it. Yep. Anyway, in 1805, the prophet, well, he's not the prophet yet, has a similar experience that Handsome Lake claimed to have. One night, he just completely passes out piss drunk. And so much so that some people thought he may have died. When he woke up in the morning, however, he started telling people that he had a vision, that the master of breath showed him the sky world, and he needed to change. I think his whole family's probably been telling him he's needed to change for a while. But anyway, like uh, back in Pontiac's War, we had Neil Lynn the prophet, and then Handsome Lake after that, and now we've got this guy. And he starts preaching similar things that these other guys before him. They, he was set against alcohol and any kind of European technology, almost to a, an Amish extent. Put back on your leggings. You can't even eat pork or beef or chicken. You, you need to stick to venison and buffalo. No more interracial marriage. We don't want any of these whites getting in here and marrying our women and uh, deluding and leading us astray. What's the most important thing that everybody's always against, Caleb? Land sales. Land sales! In the modern-day state of Indiana, he and Tecumseh helped found a town. They had this grand 12-plan vision that they were going to make it a central capital of this uh, pan-indigenous confederacy with, like, an actual central government. They had a, an idea to have a constitution where all the different tribes, the Shawnee and the Seneca and the Mingo and the Wyandant and the, the Miami and the, the Chippewas. Don't and, forget the Winnebagos. And the Winnebagos, if they would so choose, would have all the land held together in common. Which means that if you want to travel to another area to hunt across tribal lines, go right ahead. No trouble. No special wampum needed. Just travel wherever you want to hunt and visit to try and like organize this whole Indian territory into a country is pretty much what they were trying to do by modern standards with a capital and a government and, of course, a leader and a prophet. 
Pretty soon thereafter, people started flocking to this prophet, and their new city grew to thousands of people. And since this is what the Euro-Americans called it, this is what we're going to call it for the rest of the episode. Uh, a very, what kind of name would you call this, Caleb? Matter of fact? Yes. Okay. Like, like you knew where you were. Yeah. Because you were in Prophetstown. Yeah, Prophetstown. In 1808, Tecumseh started making lots of trips across the, the line into British Canada. He met with a lot of the leaders there, and he even stopped by to visit uh, the elderly Simon Gertie to ask him for advice in how to deal with uh, the Americans. You'd think Gertie probably had some good advice. My advice to him would be like, good luck. Anyway, over the next few years, he's traveling back and forth to Canada and meeting with the British. But does he trust them, Caleb? No. No, and rightly so, because... The British really just want to use the native peoples as a buffer to make sure that the Americans don't encroach too far. And they're hoping that by stirring up the native peoples that this will keep America's focus to the West and keep them out of Upper Canada. An unnamed American leader decided to pen a little uh, a little header uh, in response to this Shawnee prophet going around causing trouble. In this, he said, uh, this guy's not a real prophet. He has no supernatural powers, and if he did, he should do something cool like making dead people come back to life or making the sun stand still. Well, obviously he can't do that, Caleb, and he can't produce any miraculous astronomical signs, so I'm sure that his, his following disappeared pretty quickly after that, right? Now, after the prophet heard of this uh, memo, he, he, he told his friends, hey, I can't make uh, the dead come back to life. And uh, I can't even uh, make the sun stop. But uh, the sun's going to stop uh, tomorrow. All right, explain, Caleb. How, how is he making the sun stop? Well, somehow he knew that the next day was going to be an eclipse, whether it's either from uh, divine intervention or he just heard from people with an almanac saying that the, there was going to be a, an eclipse soon. Yep. So the next day there was an eclipse, and this just made people trust him even more. I, I would think so. That would be a, a pretty good sign. Anyway, relations are breaking down. Long story short, the Treaty of Fort Wayne in 1809 probably became a certified treaty because of a few bribes and drinks being passed around to get it secured. And Tecumseh had one goal, and that was to get this treaty repealed and revoked. But... This treaty had nothing to do with his Shawnee people. None of their lands were sold, and it doesn't really affect them. Why was he clamoring to do something about it? Yeah, Andrew, he wasn't happy with any of the land deals that were going on. And one of the big things he was telling all of the other chiefs and all the other nations is, hey, when one of us sell our land, it's affecting everybody. So if we all just stood together and refused to sell any more land, it would be better for everyone because... If you want to hunt and fish, you need land. So it doesn't matter how many goods you get from the Europeans. We need our land. We need to stop selling it. Uh, but the Americans, they hear this guy arguing about a treaty that he has nothing to do with. They're just kind of blowing him off. So in 1811, Tecumseh goes and meets with the governor of Indiana Territory, uh, some nobody named William Henry Harrison. Tecumseh brings about 400 men with him to this meeting with Harrison. And Harrison mentions to him that the land was sold by other people, and don't worry about it, Tecumseh, it's nothing to do with you. But Tecumseh then responded with this quote. Why not sell the air, the great sea, 
as well as the earth. Did not the great spirit make them for the use of his children? So things after this start to get really tense. A lot of people are kind of like moving their hands close to their weapons after Tecumseh says this. I kind of like it, you know. It's like, who? why do you think you can buy land? You can't buy air. You can't buy the ocean. Why do you think you can buy land? Tecumseh starts uh, muttering quietly to the other people something like this. Uh, I'm going to kill that guy. And, you know, he's, he's starting to just mutter to his friends, hey, let's get this guy. And then all of a sudden a gun gets drawn. Yeah, it was a Shawnee, but it was actually a Shawnee person that was a friend of Harrison's. And he points it right at Tecumseh. So like any time, you know, somebody pulls a gun in the Old West, suddenly every other person there pulls their guns out. And now you have... The 400 uh, native warriors mixing with these other natives and these other Americans, and they're all pulling out their guns and their swords and their tomahawks, and they're just standing there, and you could hear a pin drop. Luckily for everyone, probably especially William Henry Harrison, some chiefs intervened, and they said, hey, if we're going to fight, that's fine, but this is not the place for a fight. We came here to talk, and we're not savages. So pick up your stuff and go home. And if you guys want to fight, then, you know, there needs to be actual war for it. Not this, you know, fighting people in in a Congress type of setting. For the following year, Tecumseh begins traveling all over the continent, trying to convince all kinds of different nations to join his vision for a unified confederacy that could stand firm against the Americans. And then something amazing happened. I mean, the prophets already predicted an eclipse, but now a different sign appears in the heavens. Literally. A huge comet appears in the sky, Andrew, and it stays over their heads for months. This is known historically as the Great Comet of 1811. Tecumseh told the people he was trying to recruit that this comet in the sky was a sign that he was the one to lead the uprising. What does a comet have to do with Tecumseh thinking he is now the guy in charge? Well, we didn't mention this before, Andrew, but we have to look at the definition for Tecumseh, which literally translated means comet or shooting star. So while Tecumseh is traveling, Harrison is back and thinking, you know what? He's really forming a really strong confederacy. There's lots of Indian nations coming on board. And I need to move against them now. I need to go on the offensive before they are at battle-ready status. And so he thought with Tecumseh down south, talking to the Cherokees and the Creeks, I'm going to attack Prophetstown today and get this thing over with. Uh, The historical record's kind of muddled. When they're set up outside of Prophetstown, there's kind of an uneasy truce. There's people from Prophetstown going over with white flags to try and talk. And then the Americans are attacked. One version says that the Prophet leads the attack. Another version says that it's a group of Wyandants that lead the attack. And that uh, the Prophet was really mad because Tecumseh had given specific orders not to attack the Americans yet until they felt that they were ready. Whatever happened, the Americans are driven back at first, but eventually they get the upper hand and they're able to drive the people off. The casualties are not huge, maybe 60 to 70 on both sides with casualties in this battle. Not not a horrible thing, but Harrison plays this up. 
he uh, he wins the battle. He takes the field, and then afterwards they burn Prophetstown to the ground. Yeah, Andrew, I'm not sure if you know this, but uh, William Henry Harrison. After this, he actually composed a song about his victory at the Tippecanoe. Well, not quite. I'll explain. Harrison started claiming that Tippecanoe was a, a great, decisive victory that was going to turn the tide of the the war. Most people at the time, though viewed it kind of as a maybe a large skirmish or at best a tiny battle. It wasn't until two decades after this that Harrison decided to run for president that he started playing up his credentials how important this battle was, how he was the hero of Tippecanoe, and that's where his campaign came out with the number one trending billboard song, Tippecanoe and Tyler 2. If you want to know this catchy tune, just search it. I, I listened to a version today by uh, cover a cover version by They Might Be Giants. It was actually really catchy. They had taken the lyrics and reworked it musically. It's quite good. But then after this, in early winter, another, maybe you could call it, sign happens. So we've had a solar eclipse. We've had a comet. What's next? An earthquake. A huge earthquake. Massive earthquake. In fact, today, modern scientists think it was probably at least a 7.0 on the Richter scale. That would make it the largest known earthquake this side of the Rockies in hundreds of years. Probably recorded history. Many Native people took this earthquake as a sign that the prophet's predictions were starting to come true. And so even though Prophetstown was gone, more and more people start flocking to Tecumseh, and including a lot of people that used to be on the other side of the fence. And this just increases all kinds of attacks on the European-American settlers. And any kind of isolated outpost in Indiana or Illinois territory. So between the Native Americans mustering in the West and the British and the French trade war going on, America feels like it has to do something. They feel like their pride has been hurt. They feel like they're tougher than people give them credit for. And after a lot of arguing between the Federalists and the Republicans and the Warhawk, a lot of arguing, war is set to be declared. So we would like to invite you to join us in our next episode when we officially kick off the War of 1812. We'd like to remind you, uh, if you haven't yet, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have a question, you can email us at longhousepodcast at gmail.com. Also want to give a special thanks out to the Rome Historical Society. I'm not sure uh, how many of our friends and fans know this, but Andrew and I had a chance to go out to Fort Stanwix and give a, a small history lecture, and we got to talk about... Well, don't, don't say that, Caleb. It was a large history lecture. We were the keynote speakers at the, the Great Rome Historical <laughs> Society at was, Fort Stanwix. It was a lot of fun, and the people there were, were very, uh, very friendly, and we really appreciated being invited out. We got to stand up there like we were, you know, big deals. Um, did you want to tell them about meeting your hero last week as well? Oh, that's true. For anyone that uh, loves Revolutionary War, French and Indian War era art, uh, I don't have to tell you that there's two big names out there. There's John Buxton, and there's my favorite, Robert Griffin. Absolutely an amazing artist, and Andrew and I had a chance to uh, sit down and speak with him for about an hour a couple weeks ago. Yeah, at the Ganondagon State Historic Site, he was doing a book signing there with a 
man we'd mentioned before, Michael Galbin, who's the curator there, he had helped co-author the book that he was writing. So yeah, it was really cool. So I would highly recommend either Googling him or going to Robert Griffin's website if you want to see any uh, historical artwork that he's done. You know, Andrew, when we talk about a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of these historical events, it's so hard to picture what it looks like. And Robert Griffin, he talks to historians and he really like tries to find out how things looked and then he paints them. And not only that, he investigates every single person's entire life story that he's painting in the background. So it's, I, I just love sometimes, Andrew, if, if I'm just sitting around and I have nothing to do, you know, and I'm listening to one of our past episodes or reading it, I go and I look and see if he's done a painting on it just so I can focus on it and get a get a vision on what it must have looked like for for the people there. Anyway, we're kind of geeking out on them a little bit, but uh, great honor to meet him. For those of you that want to join the Wild Sweet Potato Clan, for those of you that have joined but haven't gotten your mug yet, we've sent two batches out. I'm getting ready to do the next batch. I think I got about 20 more names. So if you've been patiently waiting the last month, don't worry, I'm getting ready to to box those up. But if you haven't joined, how do you join the Wild Sweet Potato Clan, Andrew? Well, you just get on iTunes, open the podcast app up, and uh, when you see the little star button down below, you can leave us a review. Five stars we prefer. If you don't have an iPhone, well, find a friend that does. A wife, girlfriend, boss, random co-worker. Just steal their phone, open their podcast app, and still <laughs> leave a review for us. Uh, then all you have to do once you've left a review is just shoot us an email with your name, your iTunes username, and uh, your address, please. You, we keep saying this, and you don't know how many people send us an email with no name and no address. Hey, I uh, you know, I left a review. Can I have one of the Wild Sweet Potato Clan mugs? And I'm like, well, I don't know who you are or where you live, so no, you cannot. So please do that. Uh, like us on Facebook. I think we said that. Anything else, Andrew? We'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody.